A year has gone by since the calamity struck the heart of Beirut, and it is still a bleeding wound in the conscience of all the Lebanese. The quest for truth and full justice is still the claim of every Lebanese and a self-evident right. I have already committed before the Lebanese to serve justice and hold accountable everyone whose involvement is proven by the investigation. Today, I restate my pledge that no one is above the law, no matter how high they may rank. Let justice go all the way in probe and trials till facts are revealed and till the desired justice is served. Okay, so this is part two of Who Bombed Beirut, a series on the August 4th ammonium nitrate explosion. So in the last episode, we discussed the backgrounds of two Syrian-Russian businessmen and their alleged links to the Beirut explosion. Today, we're going to shift gears and tell the story of how the boat carrying the ammonium nitrate reached Beirut in 2013 and why its cargo was stored at the port for nearly seven years until eventually it exploded in 2020. We'll also delve a bit into the aftermath of the Beirut explosion, so stay tuned. Where exactly did we leave off since the last episode? Last time, we discussed FBME's connection to George Haswani and the Khoury brothers. And we said that they've been sanctioned by the United States for helping the Syrian state and Hezbollah money launder. Now, this is just what happened in relation to the two businessmen and Hezbollah. What's left of the equation there and what we'll be discussing now is their relationship to the boat that made it to Beirut. So as you know, the 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate traveled to Beirut abroad a ship called the Rosas. Now initially, this boat, the Rosas, it was said to be owned by a Russian man called Igor Krushushkin. Um, And then the Lebanese state basically issued a warrant for his arrest after they found out that he owned it. And then immediately they realized that actually the boat was originally owned by a Cypriot man. Now, this Cypriot man is called, wait for it, drum six. Manoli. Now, Beautiful. Yeah, Beautiful Mr. Manoli. His LinkedIn defines him as a Cypriot shipping entrepreneur, a graduate of Strathclyde University. For our British listeners, I know I didn't say that right. <laughs> he is 
Sherlombus Manoli, the actual owner of the boat that transported the ammonium nitrate, he is an Aristotle Onassis kind of guy. He's a shipping magnate, but he's sort of a dark um, shipping magnate. He borrowed apparently $4 million in October 2011 uh, from FBME to buy a ship. Now, that ship was not the Rosas, which eventually made it to Beirut. The ship that Manoli bought was a different one. He offered Rosas as a collateral in order to buy the new ship using money lent to him by FBME. But according to FBME, they refused this collateral. They were like, this is a shitty boat. Why the fuck would we accept it? And he was like, yeah, you're right. Now, one month later, after he got the money in 2011, he said, okay, actually, I was just joking. I can't even pay um, the first month of uh, repayments. And so immediately, FBME issued a, a declaration that they were seizing his property and real estate, not his boat, from the Cypriot authorities. And this is where the story ends with FBME. In 2012, he apparently, Manoli that is, sold the boat mm-hmm. that is Rosas to our friend Igor. And Igor, effectively in 2012, started owning the Rosas. Now... To understand why the Rosas ended up in Beirut, it's important to know that the Rosas is the shittiest boat that you'll ever meet. It broke down in Seville for the first time. And in Seville, the authorities said, you know what, this boat can't leave. And in order to maneuver through this problem, you know, a boat needs to leave a port and actually go places and pick up shipments. But if it's broken and the authorities realize this, then you're technically trapped. So if the boat was run down and flagged for what horrible conditions it was in, how did it actually leave the port of Seville? Igor went to a company called Maritime Lloyd and got a permit from them saying that the Rosas was good to go. Now, we discovered later on that Maritime Lloyd is actually partially owned by Charalambos Manoli. So effectively, what has happened is that Rosas was stuck in Seville. It couldn't leave. It was loaded with multiple technical faults and didn't have the permission to leave. So in order to get the permission, Igor went back to Manoli's company, Maritime Lloyd, and got a permit saying that this boat is actually fantastic. Five out of five stars. Now, you might say, hey, wait a second, this is corrupt. And to which we would respond, yes, it is corrupt. It is probably illegal, although I am not sure about the legal matter of the situation. But somehow, this was allowed to happen. You can technically say that your boat is functioning if you own a company that allows you to say such things. Regardless of the fact the boat left Seville, it went to Georgia. Now, in Georgia, it was hired, the story goes to take a shipment of ammonium nitrate from the factory called Azot Rustavi and to transfer this 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate to Mozambique. So we know that Beirut is not the final destination of the Rosas, but under what conditions did the boat actually detour to the port of Beirut? Right, so this far the story has nothing to do with Beirut because it was hired to take the shipment to Mozambique, to an arms factory. 
Yet our story does not take place in the Mozambique. It takes place in Beirut. And to know how the boat made it to Beirut, there are two narratives. The first narrative comes from the people on the boat. And then the second narrative comes from the Lebanese state. Let's start off with the story of the boat captain. So we have like three layers of authority over his ship, which is so insane. Like the actual owner and then the like the person he's leased to, Igor, and then the person who is running the ship, the captain, Boris. Now Boris says that they went to Beirut to pick up shipments, extra shipments, sort of like an Uber um, share ride where on the way they go and like pick up someone in Beirut, give him a ride to Jordan and then continue going onto Mozambique. And according to Boris, the boat was so, um, not only was it physically like deteriorating, it was also like broke in terms of fines. There were many fines on it and it had to also pay an extra fine to pass through the Suez Canal. But to pass through the Suez Canal, they had to pay even more money, which they didn't have. And so the idea was that, okay, we'll pass through Beirut, we'll do the site pickup, we'll get the money, use that money to pay the fine, and then somehow we'll make it to Mozambique. I mean, if a boat could barely make it out of a port because it was so defunct, the idea that you would like use it to make multiple shipments, pickups, and then um, deployments, clearly a mad plan. They started winging it. But anyway, and that's the narrative of how the boat, Rosas, made it to Beirut. Now, our very, um, what's it called? How do we say it? Our very noble state, the Lebanese state, refused for the boat to have any right to leave the port. They said that the boat is so defunct that not only are we trapping this boat inside the port, and not allowing it to leave the port. We're also refusing for the actual crew members, so Boris and all of his friends, to disembark. How long did they stay on the boat for? They stayed for three years. Um, no, no, sorry. They didn't. No, they How didn't. long did they stay? <laughs> <laughs> they stayed for one year. Thanks. Nearly one year. Um, yeah. Now, they stayed for one which year. Is a, which is crazy. You're staying on a fucking janky boat that is actually dilapidated. No running water. You're st- no running water. Your food rations are, it's thinning. They would run out. It's like, like a year with, without like a, you know, constant supply of food. Didn't, didn't someone at the port actually like bring them food out, out of the goodness of his heart? Oh yeah, no, the Boris, the captain mm. of the ship was like, we only survived because there was someone nice enough to bring us food every day. Um, because the Lebanese authorities, their system of like, you know, making sure people don't die, that hasn't been working very well for the past like few decades. So Lebanon has basically, like the Lebanese authority will only enact punishment and never any form of support. And so when they said these crew members cannot disembark, it was saying like these members can die on that boat. And legally we've done all we needed to do to get our asses covered. So then how did they end up getting off the boat? There was this like legal case that it's so mad. Like there is an actual magazine, a maritime law magazine, Mm -hmm. whereby Mm -hmm. this Lebanese um, law firm specializing in maritime law is proudly sort of giving this um, very ostentatious story of itself of how it liberated the crew members from the boat. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, and it was dangerous because they had the ammonium nitrate and they were on the boat and it was sinking. And then we saved them. Human rights. Now, from another layer, 
that doesn't include the crew member, the layer that is Lebanon's side of the story, is that the boat, the Rosist, was coming in for an actual shipment. And so this shipment was equipment for surveying the Mediterranean for oil. It was like heavy machinery that they okay. that the Lebanese state borrowed from Jordan. Um, okay. And they wanted to return them. So they were just returning them. And a good, a good way to do it is through Aqaba, like from the Beirut port to Aqaba and mm-hmm. southern Jordan, mm-hmm. because there's no currently, there's no links between Beirut and Jordan, except going through Syria, which you can't do because there's a civil war, or through Israel, which you can't do because Lebanon is technically at war. So again, shows you how important the port is for Lebanon. But either case, it turned out that the Lebanese state had paid a company called Spectrum to get rid of the equipment, not mentioning anything about the ammonium nitrate. And therefore, this is how the Ministry of Energy, which was responsible for getting rid of the equipment, this is how they explained their involvement with Rosas. And they said, it's not our fault. We sort of contracted people. um, And those people contracted other people. And this is the sort of explanation for how the shipment made it to Beirut. Now, of course, they don't discuss or even come up with an answer for why was the cargo then mishandled and kept in a hangar with other explosives and contraband or explosive material and contraband. But what we do know is that through this mix, through this like multiple sort of plans to get um, the equipment out, the ammonium nitrate made it in. So just to recap, the boat reaches the port of Beirut in horrible conditions. It's rickety, it's run down, it's in debt, and it's flagged. So the Lebanese state decides to detain it, along with its crew members. Now, the Lebanese state is holding the boat, not the cargo on the boat, because the cargo is owned by the entity that purchased it. And yet, somehow, 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate made it off the boat. So... Tell us where did this cargo go and what was happening within the state and its institutions and among state officials uh, about what should be done with the cargo. I think it was removed one year after, like during the same time that the crew members disembarked because okay. eventually the boat sank. Like the that's the, the wild thing is that the Liberty State did not care about any element of this um yeah, they didn't care about the crew members. They didn't care about the boat. They did save the ammonium nitrate in the place where you save contraband. But that's about it. You had to get private lawyers to fight on behalf of the crew members. You just did with ammonium nitrate what you did with other contraband. It was stored in hangar number 12. And I think throughout this period between the storage and 2020, there were various reports written by members of the Port Authority, public institution which manages the port. They wrote various reports to the Supreme Council of Defense. They wrote reports to various judges and they alerted people. And several people were alerted, in fact, throughout the period between 2013 and 2020. And in fact, I think very recently, Megaphone this Lebanese uh, media outlet did a report on the fact that the prime minister, the current prime minister, Hassan Diab, was alerted twice in the month preceding the explosion. And yet he did nothing about it. 
Now we know that over seven years, many other politicians and officials had known about the ammonium nitrate and remained silent. So what happens next? So the explosion happens on August 4th, 2020. And correct me if I'm missing any details, Amal, because I think you have a better mm-hmm. memory of the actual unfolding of the event than me. But on that day, I believe I heard the explosion come in through Amal's phone. And then she said to me on the phone, I think an explosion happened and then hang up. And then they lost networks. So I couldn't call her back. Mm-hmm. And I was on Twitter, mm-hmm. just literally looking at different images. And if you remember, did you see information immediately, like after that moment where the explosion? I only happened saw and you heard the it? headline that from the Minister of Health that was saying um, fireworks. It's fireworks, and then they would show footage of the explosion, and everyone was saying this is insane. I also saw several people saying we saw a plane, um, but no official evidence of the case. Actually, it's just what was shocking was not really the evidence of what caused the explosion as much as it was the amount of media footage of the actual physical explosion to be able to see it from so many like i mean not yeah, only were yeah. you able to see it from every side of the land there were various people on a boats who had footage from the sea and so because we live in a like a media saturated world a and b because before the mushroom cloud happened there was a fire people started filming And so the fire alerted people to the fact that something was happening, which meant that way more people caught footage of the explosion than actually would have had they not known that the explosion was going to happen. Another event that led us to this sort of, um, should we say, more holistic thinking about what caused the explosion was that I think in March, someone in March of 2021, although I could be wrong about the dates here, Um, Someone posted an Instagram infographic showcasing four different assassinations that happened related to the port of Beirut explosion. And now, political assassinations are very normal in Lebanon. But the person who was making the case was saying, well, wait a second, these are explosions of pretty non-senior authority figures whose only, the only thing that unites them is the fact that they're somehow related to the Beirut port. Now, the first person was a colonel who was in charge of um, customs in the port uh, Beirut, in the port of Beirut. Um, so the person in charge of customs is the person who basically tells you, this is illegal, this you have to pay a fine on, and supervises the entry and exit of contraband. And Colonel Joseph Skaff was the first to warn about the ammonium nitrate. He sent a letter to the customs administration's anti-smuggling service and to other officials warning about the ammonium nitrate about its dangers and he is suspected by many people to have been assassinated because of it so who else is suspected to be assassinated because of the ammonium nitrate second person was a due diligence officer for a bank and they were the 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 head of the anti-terrorism Um, unit. So their job was to effectively tell a bank whether their investments are tied to a sanctioned entity like Hezbollah or not, and how they could stay away from sanctions. Um, And then a close friend of the customs officer was also killed. Um, And he's a military colonel who also worked in customs in the airport, I believe. And the fourth person was an army photographer 
who has some pretty strong views against Hezbollah. Um, now, there was a fifth person that came after this. Um, he's different from these people because he's not connected to the Port Beirut explosion. What he is is an, I don't know how to put this in a clear yet non-partisan uh, way. And by partisan, I mean tanky versus Trotskyist way. This person hates the living shit out of Hezbollah. And he's a progressive, should we say, liberal. His name is Lokman Slim. He has had accusations of meeting, um, should we say, conservative NGOs in America on his when he visited the United States. And he's appeared in a WikiLeaks or two. Um, but generally, he's just an archivist. He collects documents about the history of the civil war. Um, but he is pretty vocal against Hezbollah. And he was assassinated, for sure, outside of his house in a pretty gruesome way. There were theories that he was helping a Hezbollah officer come out of Hezbollah. He was defecting. Mm-hmm. Um, a defector who had news about Hezbollah's involvement in the Beirut explosion. The other thing that like is evidence of Hezbollah's potential involvement, and I know we're treading on dangerous ground, Amal, so hold on tight, is the fact that two ministers who are allied with Hezbollah, if not three, I think, were ministers of public works for the period that covers the arrival of the ammonium nitrate and the um, explosion. And the ammonium nitrate um, and the ministry, sorry, the minister of public work is not only responsible for all infrastructure, but they're also responsible, as we discussed in the first episode, to the Beirut, uh, to the Beirut uh, ports running as a private public sort Mm -hmm. of um, company. And so this brings us to a moment now in Lebanon where there is a legal investigation into who is culpable for the explosion in Beirut. And I think the suspects are many, many, from people who knew about it to people who um, should have known about it. But one problem in the investigation has been trying to investigate, just simply investigate two ministers of public work who are technically responsible for the running of the port they have been declared immune from legal investigation due to their ministerial positions. And people are going fucking crazy about this. They, The current judge presiding over the court um, investigating the explosion wants to investigate them. But there is much, much opposition from the Minister of Justice, um, who is currently maintaining their immunity provided by the Lebanese constitution and saying, no, they should not be investigated. What sort of justification does he give for this? None. It's obscene at this point that the investigation has basically been wrapped up in one sort of constitutional or legal hurdle. I think the only people who got charged early on were literal workers from the Beirut port. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on the more international investigations level... You have a couple investigations that were taking place in Lebanon right after the explosion occurred. Uh, There's a French investigation that's been ongoing for about a year, and we don't know what's going on with that. I'm sure in future episodes we'll have a little update on that. But the main investigation is the FBI investigation that happened right after 
the Beirut explosion at the request of the Lebanese government. And in the FBI report, it stated that out of the 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate that was originally in the port, only 500 tons exploded. And this amount was also corroborated by European intelligence sources. So the question of where the other three-fourths of the ammonium nitrate went becomes a very important one to have simmering It's definitely in your a piece mind. of the puzzle. Like It's, something happened to that shipment in Beirut, within Beirut, because when it made it to Beirut, it was 2,750, which means that A, the explosion could have been more catastrophic. B, someone has been using that ammonium nitrate. And let me tell you something, Lebanese agriculture... Not that great. Yeah, it's not great. And Lebanon does not need 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate. In fact, there was a an investigative journalist named Leal Boumoussa who herself was investigating the port explosion. And she reported that for two years, Lebanon only uses 1,000 tons of ammonium nitrate. So it makes you think. There are other pieces of the puzzle. Even if we have most of the pieces of the puzzle... And we know a great deal of information that implicates, you know, globally, individuals, corporations, financial institutions, politicians. I think our depressing reality is that this will likely not be used in a court case to bring those responsible for the Beirut explosion to justice. And this is a reality for many reasons. There's not going to be an investigation unless it's an international one. And even that is very unlikely. Right. Definitely unlikely. So since the recording of our first episode, a few things have happened that are of interest to the Beirut port explosion. It might be relevant to bring these up to discuss the likely culprits and the objective facts of what happened prior to the explosion. Now, the main sort of shocking event that I think was quite insane is a video uploaded by Megaphone where they show an interview between the lawyer of an ex-general of the Lebanese military called John Ahwaji. Now, his lawyer was defending him in court and he came out of the court and he was interviewed by the press and immediately he just blurted out, listen, This is Hezbollah's weaponry. They brought it over for the Syrian state and they want to use it for war in Syria. And he just said it as a matter of fact thing. And obviously this was picked up by media channels across Lebanon. And the mad thing is that John Ahwaji himself immediately denied any relationship (laughs) to his lawyer. He was like... This lawyer does not, he does not represent, represent me. He represents me in court, <laughs> but not with what he just said. I'm an independent yeah. person and I will continue to use this man's services because he's giving me a discount. But what he just said, <laughs> dismiss it, not me. The military in Lebanon does have this pressure to always um, stay on the balance when it comes to Hezbollah because obviously Hezbollah is the second military in Lebanon. And so any perceived antagonism between the military and Hezbollah is always perceived as a recipe for disaster. Mm. And so Ahwaji's lawyer made the statement on the 2nd of August um, and immediately it was denied by his general. But there was also a response from Hezbollah as well, wasn't there? Yeah, so on August 7th, 
Nasrallah gave a speech essentially dispelling the rumors that Hezbollah has anything to do with the ammonium nitrate at the port. Instead, what he says is that the ammonium nitrate is actually for um, Islamist militants in Arsal and Qalamun, and that Hezbollah militants don't even use ammonium nitrate to manufacture their explosives. I, I feel like it's become this game between the two political si- the two sides of the political spectrum in Lebanon, whereby one side is saying, no, it's Syrian Islamists, and the other is saying, no, it's Shia Islamists. Right. Um, but I mean, then the question becomes, does it make sense for Islamist opposition members or groups to use the Beirut port to smuggle in weapons or smuggle in uh, explosive material? Why, why wouldn't they use Turkey? Why wouldn't they use Iraq? It's way more porous than the Lebanese mm-hmm. border, not because Lebanon is more secure, but simply because Lebanon's border with Syria is smaller and it's much more um, sort of rigid or rugged in its uh, terrain. And another interesting thing that I saw also by Megaphone was a video of an MP from Hezbollah who spoke immediately in the aftermath of the explosion, claiming that the explosives were meant the ingredients for the explosive stored in the Beirut port were meant for the town of Lixir, um, which is a small border town between Lebanon and Syria that is that is part of the Syrian state actually, but was taken over by the opposition. Um, and then the MP claimed that after Hezbollah took over the city and Hezbollah really took over the city, it's now basically a Hezbollah colony. There was no need for the ammonium nitrate, and so it was stuck. And then Megaphone, this Lebanese media outlet, pointed out that the ammonium nitrate and its delivery to Lebanon both occurred after Hezbollah took over the town. So in mm. effect, this So story, the timelines don't... The timeline doesn't match they're up. Not, like, they're not they're, matching. No, right. they're not matching. And this guy made it as if it's like the... Made the story as if it's the narrative of the party... And mm-hmm. if he is um, sort of like giving it, it's just like from various points of view, whether it's the objective narrative of like the time or the logic of why the Syrian opposition, who is um, um, at least the parts that Hezbollah is accusing of um, ha- ordering the ammonium nitrate. A lot of them are Islamists. Why would you use a port positioned in a city, in the part of the city that is dominated by Christian forces, East Beirut, and in a country that is not necessarily entirely brought into the idea of supporting the Syrian opposition. Right, right. You don't have allies in this country for you to say, hmm, best place to smuggle in 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate is through Lebanon, where Hezbollah is arguably the strongest force. When you can actually look at its relationship with, let's say, like the Turkish government. Like, I mean, Turkey is occupying northern Syria as we speak on behalf like, of the opposition or in the name of the opposition. Yes, so it's like yes. you have a straight, like a, a, a visibly pro-opposition policy from Turkey. Right. You have people in Iraq or at least like Iraqi border. Forget about the politics of the Iraqi state. The Iraqi border is much easier to move through than the Lebanese one. And then you say, no, actually, the best way to do it is to do it in a country dominated by forces that oppose us and in a part of the city where most people don't even support the Syrian opposition. It makes no sense whatsoever. Okay, well, um, let's try to kind of make sense at least of this 
accusation against Israel. If you remember, Amal, when we discussed the last episode, why the port of Beirut was so important. In fact, for a century before um, the Second World War, the Beirut port was almost always in the shadow of the port of Haifa, which had a much closer um, proximity to more cities. So it was closer Mm -hmm. to Egypt, closer to the Gulf, and still accessible to Turkey. It was much more developed as well. And so it always dominated over the port of Beirut. And in fact, in 1948, and this is part of Lebanese official history, and so the biggest um, winner from the fall of the Palestinian uh, nation-state to Israeli forces was actually the port of Beirut, Mm -hmm. simply because the port of Beirut became the only port on the eastern Mediterranean that was highly developed um, and could absorb um, huge quantities of oil or shipments that needed to be made in and out of the Middle East and into the Mediterranean and onto Europe. And so the port of Beirut was really a treasured piece of infrastructure. And that was until it obviously exploded, now requiring billions and billions of dollars of investments to be rebuilt. And even then, it probably will not have um, the same capacities it had before. But the interesting piece of news that sort of like colors this is that Israeli media started reporting immediately in the one year anniversary of the explosion that the port of Haifa is getting a massive, massive infrastructural development. Mm-hmm. They're getting updated. They're getting a glow up. And they're announcing that that the opening of this um, upgraded part of the port will happen in on the 1st or 2nd of September. And at the same time, we know that Israel has conducted various peace treaties with Gulf states, including treaties that include the provision of oil for export through the port of Israel. And now, obviously, I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist because, you know, I'm hosting this podcast. But at the same time, (laughs) um, it's hard not to look at Israel and say, you have a lot to benefit from at the right time. And now suddenly your biggest competitor for the export of oil and resources into and out of the Arab world has decimated. Their Mm. country is like, you know, in ruins. So how does Israel play into this fact? I think Israel has a lot to gain, but I don't know to what extent it lit up the match that blew up the port of Beirut. Mm. There are like people coming out and saying, yeah, we we did see planes, although we don't have footage. Right, no footage and mostly just kind of like circulations of Facebook posts and so on. Dismiss those. So, I'm talking, yeah, like those, those videos, I'm like, you can see blurry. Maybe there was one the woman sky. who was interviewed in the beginning or something like that when she was on, talking. Yeah, on one news channel, there was a woman mm-hmm. who was um, interviewed immediately after because Lebanese media is like very ethical. And because of like their ethical guidelines, they immediately started interviewing everyone who was distraught after the explosion <laughs> without like giving any pause to like, okay, are these people, do these people need help? Do they know what's going on? Like two minutes after the explosion, there already was live footage on MTV. And, <laughs> which is and to say, which is also to say that, you know, immediately after the explosion takes place, of course, people are going to be thinking about an, a possible Israeli attack. Which because is it means war. what most of us thought yeah. of. Yeah. <laughs>
It has been one year and one week since the Beirut port exploded. Yet we still do not know who bombed Beirut. We do know, however, who purchased the ammonium nitrate. That was a company called Savaro Limited. The company had links to Syrian Russian businessmen who have been alleged by the United States government to have used their contacts to supply weapons and cash to the Syrian regime. We also know that once the shipment made it to the port of Beirut, that the Lebanese state failed to safely get rid of the shipment, as one government office after another ignored or passed on the responsibility over the dangerous shipment that was lying in the center of the city. Today, one year later, the Lebanese state is stubbornly maintaining the immunity of ministers and high government officials from legal prosecution. What's worse, the country has been in a fully-fledged economic crisis and a political deadlock. As the French and UK investigation unfold, we'll be with you. So stay tuned with Radio Baghdad as we update you on the stories of those responsible for bombing Beirut. Stay tuned on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next episode will not examine the Beirut port. Instead, we dig deeper into the history of the Middle East and Western intervention, starting with Sykes-Picot, an agreement between England and France, which changed the trajectory of the region for decades to come. See you next month. Goodbye.